0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the the attendants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The Gospel of the Lord.
1: Praise to you, Christ. O Lord, may your word only be spoken, and may your word only be heard. In the name of Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. I've been listening to the radio quite a lot in the last week or so trying to keep track of what's going on in the world and particularly our economy. Apparently it was, you know this already, but apparently it was the worst week ever in the stock market. The worst week ever. And I learned a lot about why that was so and I won't repeat that for you. I will share with you one little thing that I did learn and that's that there's another kind of indices out there that tracks the stock market. You probably all know about the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the Nikkei and the NASDAQ and Standard & Poor's, those indices which help, uh, help us measure what's happening in the stock market and, and, therefore, what's happening in the economy. How many of you heard the story about the fear index? Well, guess what? There is a thing called the FEAR Index. I kid you not. It is the Chicago Board Options Exchange Volatility Index, or VIX for short. It measures the projected volatility, which is to say the violent fickleness of the stock market. And you wouldn't be surprised to know that by the end of this past week, it was at its highest point ever. So I learned that from this radio story. And as it went on, I learned some other things, too. There are three things that drive our economy. Fear, greed, and the presence or lack thereof of certainty. Fear, greed, and uncertainty. I also learned, and I don't know exactly how these things are measured, but fear is twice as effective a motivator as greed. Now, probably most of us don't need something called the fear index to remind us just how powerful fear is in our lives and in the lives not only of people, but in the lives of nations. But it's kind of comforting when social science confirms what we already know to be true. The reading from Exodus this morning gives us a lesson About some of the symptoms of fear. You recall that the Israelites were brought out of Egypt through the Red Sea by God's mighty arm a few weeks ago. And in recent weeks, they've been complaining, kind of murmuring about not enough food, not enough water. They've been concerned about the trustworthiness of their leadership in Moses. In short, the Israelites were scared. Scared of their newfound freedom scared of this new situation, scared of whether or not God could be trusted to take care of them. Even though they had agreed to live in covenant with God, remember we had the Ten Commandments last week, they found themselves unable to trust that relationship, unable to trust the leadership of Moses. And so while Moses is on the mountain, the Israelites asked Aaron, the second in command, to make new gods for them and he takes their gold and he melts it and he fashions an idol made out of gold a calf made out of gold right off the bat the Israelites have broken the first commandment you shall have no other gods before me but somehow this tangible though ultimately ephemeral presence of this idol gives them some kind of temporary comfort temporary security and like the Israelites I don't need to remind you we so often when we are afraid we create idols idols out of things material possessions out of attitudes that become hardened like stone idols of other people even To stand in the place of the living God. I think it's profoundly true and fitting that the first commandment, the most important commandment, is the one against idolatry. Because it is the thing that we do, I think, more often than any other commandment. We break that commandment more than any other commandment. These idols that we create, they seem somehow more immediate, more solid, more tangible, more reliable, we think, than the promises of God. And we can know what some of these idols are. Reputation. Wealth. Material goods. Status. Power. Control. Control. All of these things and others become our gods as people and as nations. These gods seem to promise to bring us out of the slavery that we've been in, into the promised land of security and contentment. Now, that's how the Israelites are portrayed, I think. What's happening with their fear and with our fear. I want to spend a moment talking about the way God is portrayed in the Exodus lesson which I think suggests fear on God's part as well if you'll permit me just a bit of armchair psychology which I think is fitting actually given the very human terms that God is portrayed in in this text I want to offer some thoughts along these lines when God finds out that the Israelites have made a golden calf. And are worshipping it. The reaction is immediate and vivid. God wants to destroy. The Israelites. God is angry. Now my experience of anger may be different than yours. And it may not be universally true. But I think often. Underneath the veneer of anger. Is fear. Fear. Beneath, for example, beneath our initial anger anger at, say, a child being disobedient and, say, crossing the street without looking. After that anger, if we think just for a second, it's fear that's underneath that. We're afraid that the child might be hurt. Maybe we're afraid that we're being disobeyed and there's kind of some control issues in there as well, but I think really we're afraid that the child is going to be hurt and maybe even killed or in another kind of situation if if, uh, we're angry at someone who's treated us poorly at work or in our family life beneath that veneer of anger I think is part of us might be afraid that we're not worthy of good treatment or that we've lost control of the situation somehow or that we might be perceived as weak. In the case of the child crossing the street, I would say that there's even another stratum of emotion beneath the fear. And that is love. We get angry because we're afraid because we love. Now, I might be going out on a limb here. But here I go. God is angry because God is afraid of losing Israel Because God loves Israel. And anger and fear and love exist on a continuum and are all intimately linked together. Now, like Lucy Van Pelt in the Peanuts comic strip, I'm going to charge you five cents for that psychiatric evaluation. Truly, though, I think as we look at the the Exodus story, our God is nothing but passionate for us. And our ancestors in faith saw this as well. God does not want us to settle for temporary fixes, the temporary fixes that our idolatries offer us. Now, how that passion is shown and mediated through this ancient text requires us modern people to do a little work, a little digging, a little struggling. But like any important relationship, that's what it takes, isn't it? God will do crazy things for the love of us. Like send a savior. God's own child to be born and live and die And rise for us. Amen.